0: Esports has to be student-led. T-sports, traditional sports, um, you, you have student leadership organizations, right? I mean, you, you have like student student participants, I don't call them student athletes because of the sort of racist history of that phrase. But, but the student participates, to student participants in traditional athletics, you have leadership councils, you have team captains, you have all of that sort of thing. But they're not driving that show. It's very clear who's driving. Mm-hmm. It's the head coaches, right? It's the ADs. It's the conference leaders. It's the presidents of institutions. In esports, it better be your students, or you're done. That's just the bottom line. You you you've got to see yourself as facilitating, not directing. I think that's essential.
1: Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for Student Affairs. I'm your host, Dr. Glenn de Guzman. I am joined by our panelists who are part of the growing esports community on colleges and campuses nationwide. I'm excited to be able to talk to them about this phenomenon and its continued impact on college campuses. And I just spent um, considerable time with them right before we start recording And I'm loving the conversation that we had before we started recording. So I'm really excited about what is going to emerge in this conversation on Student Affairs Now. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find details about this episode or others um, in our archives at Student Affairs Now. Com. Quick shout out to our sponsors for today's episode. This episode is sponsored by Vector Solutions, formerly Everfi, the trusted partner for two thousand plus colleges and universities. Vector Solutions is the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. And this episode is also sponsored by Stylist Publishing. Visit stylistpub.com and use the promo code SA now for thirty percent off your purchase, and you also get free shipping, which is always a good thing. Uh, So stay tuned at the end of this podcast for more detailed information about each sponsor. All right, let's get started. My name, again, is Glenda Guzman. I'm the Associate Dean of Students and Director of Residential Life at the University of California, Berkeley. I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm zooming in from Livermore, California, which is the ancestral home of the unceded territory of the Ohlone Mukwekma, the Chochenya-speaking people. Uh, This land continues to be of great importance to this present day, and is still home to the Muwekma Ohlone tribe and other descendants of the Rona Band of Alameda County. So let's meet this awesome panel. Um, We have Dr. George McClellan from the University of Mississippi. Welcome, George. We have Caitlin Tiniente from St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. Hello. And we have Mike Aguilar a.k.a. Moog from the University of Oklahoma. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to get started. And in the spirit of gaming, let's start with a little bit of character development. So I'm hoping that you all can introduce yourselves a little bit more fully and just tell the audience a little bit more about you. And because, you know, I'm sporting my my Cal Esports shirt. Um, I love playing video games growing up. I'd love to hear your favorite game, online game or video game when you're growing up. So let's go ahead and get started. George, why don't you kick us off?
0: I'm George McClellan. I'm a professor of higher education at the University of Mississippi. I use he and his pronouns. And I'm glad for the opportunity to learn, live, and love in the home place of the Akopisa, Bayagula, Biloxi, Chakachuma, Choctaw, Huma, Ibatupa, Karawa, Natchez, Ofagula, Pascagula, Toposa, Tau, Tunica, Ya, and Yazoo peoples. Um Mississippi uh, was the home of many original peoples. And today this is known as the area of Mississippi and a town called Oxford. Um, in In gaming terms, um, you know i i I'm older than dirt. Uh, so like I started on on console games and and you know i I'm that kid with a stack of quarters and a Donkey Kong machine anywhere. they would let me sit and play. Uh more recently I have become an online gamer. I'm not an esports player, I'm a gamer, and and we'll talk about that distinction later. Uh you'll you'll find me as Lord Widget in, in uh Lord's Mobile. I am the one true widget. Uh and so that's that's sort of where you'll find me hanging out in online gaming space.
1: Thank you, George. Caitlin.
2: Hello, my name is Caitlin Theantha. I'm the director of eSports and the head eSports coach at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, not to be confused with any of the other wonderful St. Mary's (laughs) universities and colleges around the U.S., Um, (laughs) um, and I use she, her pronouns, Um, a lot of my work is focused on the development of our esports program uh, on both the competitive side of things and the student academic side of things um my background is in marketing and communications that was what i was doing before i started my job at saint mary's university um when i was growing up some of my favorite video games to play were um Paper Mario, the Nintendo 64. Honestly, a classic. Um, (laughs) uh, As well as uh, Legend of Zelda games. Um, Esports titles that I like to play are pretty much exclusively League of Legends. You'll find me as just my first name, Caitlin. Um, I've been playing since season two. And so that's why, I I don't know, I don't have an in-game name because I just use my name. (laughs)
1: Thank you for the introduction, Caitlin. Um, Moog.
3: Yeah, so my name is Mike Aguilar. I also go by Moog. I'm the Director of Esports and Co-Curricular Innovation at the University of Oklahoma, which is housed inside of the Division of Student Affairs. Um, I'm an undergrad in IT and an MBA. Um, some things for me is I enlisted in the military three months before 9-11 happened. I grew up in West Germany when the wall was still up and it was actually called West Germany. Um, And I've been gaming since the Atari 2600, as you can't quite see it. But there's a Pong paddle right up there from when I was grown and an entire caddy of my original cartridges, um, including uh, Pele Soccer. So rest in peace, Mm Pele. But um, I've been a gamer forever. One of my favorite games growing up was Mega Man. Um, It was kind of my introduction into what I still call uh, very early forms of EDM. Um, And I was definitely the little nerd that had the little Walkman that would record the music off the TV. And it was my entire soundtrack to my childhood. Uh, but I also work for companies like Apple. I've worked um, in the local sector, juvenile facilities, um, and it also helps me kind of scope how to reach youth um, in a lot of ways of development using gaming as a preventative measure versus a reactionary measure, which Oklahoma is not known for some of the best things in regards to educational standards, um, in regards to K-12 public sector, or our youth programs of incarceration and those types of things. And gaming creates an opportunity to help deal with those things. Um, but if I'm talking about modern day, I play a lot of Apex Legends. I'm a big sci-fi fan, and it's a good blend between the two. Plus, the representation in Apex Legends is uncanny. Um, I love it very, very much. Um, But I'm also a photographer of 20 years. I've shot pretty much everything that you can think of, starting in live uh, Polynesian dance. I actually used to dance. We had a master kumahula down here in Lawton, Oklahoma, where I grew up. And then eventually evolved into shooting weddings, family, glamour, automotive, And right now, the only thing that I still shoot actively is cosplay, which has a lot, obviously, convergence between these two worlds. Um, But I use that now and I'm evolving that platform now into focusing on advocacy for things that frustrate me, which are some things that we will talk about in this panel um, in regards to representation, in regards to um, people gatekeeping incorrectly or um, advocating, you know, quite a little bit off the mark of, of making sure that we are creating a world of what we want to have in the future.
1: Thank you, Moog. Let's stay with you really quickly. Um, and I'm going to give you the the difficult task of, you know, our, our listeners will range uh, in terms sure. of your professionals um, to experienced administrators and decision makers. So if you can provide our listeners with an overview of esports uh, and maybe even that distinction between esports and gaming, um, yes. describe this to anyone who may not know about this? Uh, let's start with that question.
3: So my my typical elevator speech for this question is literally gaming esports very different things with plenty of crossover culturally but gaming is like playing a pickup game of basketball with your friends at a local court you don't have to ask anybody to do it you just need a flat surface a round hole and a ball of some sort to throw it to that hoop and then you can play you can just do it on a whim esports however is the nba finals it requires all the development all the infrastructure all the team development psychology marketing to Rio, venue operations logistics hospitality services program design all of that intention is the differentiator between these two worlds The other biggest component of the differences between, again, casual gaming versus what we are doing as esports, as a revenue generator, as a program development, as a global phenomenon, is the actual differentiator between those two worlds. When we talk about traditional sports, you know, the NCAA is a perfect example. They'll sell you equivalency of an open source piece of software. It's the NCAA's version of football, of the NCAA's version of basketball that we adhere to in our traditional athletics programs. However, in esports, that governing body isn't open source. It is managed by an intellectual property developer like Blizzard Entertainment or Riot Games or um, Psyonix or Epic Games or these different companies and so creates an additional hurdle of program infrastructure of scaling up and down um, and so forth. But the biggest, biggest thing to note about esports is that the ton of all these different layers of infrastructure from the wellness component, psychological development, as much as the training and game muscle memory, what you're eating, what you're putting into your body, how you're expanding your mind, all of those are very similar to, and a lot of people get frustrated when I use this parallel, to traditional athletics. But again, the backend infrastructure has a lot of similarities. The front end and the cultures that we cater to, yes, vastly different in a lot of ways. But then you can argue Madden and you can argue NBA 2K and you can you know, argue FIFA, which are almost identical in that regard and the perfect parallel. So the biggest thing to note between the two worlds is gaming, definitely more of the casual side. It is also represents last year, $155 billion industry of revenue. Whereas the esports represented only $1.1 billion sliver of that 155. But the thing to note, and why it's still important despite that massive ratio difference is that esports industry has had over a 20% year-over-year growth for the last several years and is still not letting up. So it is evolving in regards to what things are prioritization, what things are important, what things are focused on. But that's that steam train is not stopping. It's just growing and pushing through. So casual. Definitely more of the gaming, you know, pick up a controller, pick up your, you know, load up, go online, play a game, less interaction, less multiplayer, less of it's still there. But eSports is meant to be the highest tier of competition at the highest form um, to represent a brand, a movement, uh, investor or whatever to go and compete just like in any other traditional sport, whether it be traditional athletics with a ball or something like motorsports or anything else that's competition.
0: Mm-hmm. And in front of an audience.
3: Yes. And in front of the audience, just, yes. yeah,
0: I'm curious. The audience is the differentiator.
3: Yeah.
0: I'm
1: curious to know, do you happen to know how many colleges have esports program? Is that being tracked?
3: So um, as, as a order of timeline and magnitude. So I started development in R&D at OU in 2016, November 10th. I'll never forget the date because I got asked, what is Twitch? And that's what started this whole journey for me at OU. At that time, across the North American continent, Canada included, there was less than probably 25 institutionally supported developments of any type and only one Power 5 D1 which was Utah at A.J. Demick, um, literally got his endorsement and development at that moment, literally the week before I started development. Um, and now we fast forward to 2022. We now have well over 300, 400 universities that has some sort of institutional development. But one of the most important parts isn't the collegiate space. It is the, the K-12 scholastic space where we went from maybe 500 high schools across North America to now well over 3,000 high schools and middle schools, which is the establishment of pipeline into our programs and the future you know, maturation and focus of development into potential path to pro in the conventional sense of athletics, but also all the jobs that go with it. So teachers in K-12 now have new purposes, new resources, new job opportunities, and new forms of competition and inclusion. And now the collegiate sector, obviously, with more resources typically than the K-12 sector, fortifies that and legitimizes that purpose. And in the pro sector, as it continues to grow and get more visibility and mainstream acceptance, Formalizes the entire pipeline from kindergarten to postgrad.
0: I think it's helpful when you ask about how many there are to remember that um, there are esports, like registered student organizations, there are esports club sports teams, and then there are esports varsity competitive teams. Some schools have all of those, some schools have some part of those. And the relationship between those entities on campus can vary. Sometimes they're collaborative and cooperative and integrated, and sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, So, when you ask how many there are, it's important to, you know, what do you ask? How many varsity there are? Or are you asking how many universities have esports programs? Mm -hmm.
1: Makes me also wonder because, you know, you bring up student organizations, and this is just sort of a comment. I, I started thinking about it, and my son and daughter's high school has a student organization on and they do Mario Brothers I think it's their lunchtime and they they game I'm assuming they're competing or they're gaming and and they talk about it in a tournament format but that's really interesting to hear Caitlin uh you know I know that we we spoke at like a little bit about this and I know that you get this question a lot um and you know I'm Obviously, I wanted to ask this question. It was from a personal perspective. You know, my daughter is a big gamer, uh, and when I shared with them about what you do, and 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 I was excited that I I was able to to book you to be on this panel. Um, they became very excited. We actually began googling you. Um, I want to get your perspectives on uh, inclusivity and gender dynamics in esports. Um, at least from my perspective um, as a as a as a parent, um, it it seems to be very male dominated and I know that barriers do exist just based on my conversation with my daughter, at least her from their perspective. Um can you speak to maybe your personal experiences as a gamer and now coach and how it has shaped your approach as a coach.
2: Sure. So I'll be I'll be honest. Um you know I didn't have too many negative experiences with esports or gaming until I was a college student myself. Um that is probably the first time I had really experienced any kind of discrimination or harassment because of my interest in esports. Um and that negativity came from other men and other women who were also gamers or active in the esports club. Um, so that was very jarring for me <laughs> in college. But what that kind of showed me was that um there is a lot of room for growth and um and from there. You know, I always kept those experiences in the back of my mind with everything that I did, you know, very intentional in how I treated other people. You know, was I going to be welcoming? Was I going to try to bring more people into the fold? Or was I going to, you know, be cliquish or a gatekeeper or what have you? So those er experiences are very early on really shaped um, how I proceeded through the esports industry as a young working professional. Um, going into my role at St. Mary's as first head coach and then director of eSports, um, you know, I had been invited to speak on a lot of different panels, um, podcasts, um, local news. And, um, of those, the vast majority, um, I was asked, you know, very similar questions. What is it like to be a woman in esports? Or oh, you're the X, Y, and Z. What it, you know? Just the same question over and over again. And I mention this because it is it is a different experience than a lot of my male colleagues and counterparts. They are not asked what is it like to be a man in esports. Um, and so that right there is is part of the difference in experience experiences that we might face. Um, m- more, majority of those times, those questions come from a good place. It comes from a place of curiosity and um, just genuinely wanting to know a little bit more about X, Y, and Z. Um, and so for me, I have to remember that when I'm answering these questions, it's not necessarily for myself right? It's for the audience. It's for those who maybe this is their first uh, time watching a panel about diversity, equity, inclusion. Maybe this is their first time, you know, listening to someone speak about the challenges that women face in esports. I have to keep in mind that the question, more often not coming from a good place, but it's for an audience that generally hasn't heard this response before, or anyone's response to this question before. And so what that also gives me is a unique opportunity to use that platform, right? Because if I am, not that I'm being singled out, but if I am getting asked this question, it also doubles as an opportunity for me to speak about other things that are really important to me, like the monetary barrier to entry in esports. There is a difference between, well, depending on where you live, you can look at a map of your city and you can highlight the zip codes of rich schools and highlight the zip codes of poor schools and when you're recruiting as a coach or a director there's a difference in the games that students play from those rich schools and vice versa um, so again going back to the original question um, you know I can use these opportunities to educate those that are genuinely curious and talk about the things that are really um, important to me. Um, With that being said, a couple of things that myself and my coaching staff have kept really close to our heart is that representation matters. And that's number one, that's a really nice thing to say, but unless we're doing something about it, it doesn't really matter. And so the thing we decided to do about that is to be intentionally visible and the reason that this is important is because my coaching staff of five—I thought right, hold on—yes, my coaching staff of five um, is is one hundred percent people of color. And um, of my coaches, myself, Elena, Tiff, Serana, who am I missing? Four out of the five are women. Um, and so, being intentionally visible helps us, you know, go back to yes, representation matters, and here's why because when we are visible as coaches, it encourages more people to try out for the program or sign up for a recruiting website to get in front of us. Um, It inspires more people to learn more about esports or join our student staff. Um, And so that's, again, being a woman in esports, these experiences have shaped what I do and how I do things. Um, you know, again, talking about opportunity versus accessibility for women, um, not everybody has the opportunity to try out for a myriad of reasons. You know, Maybe they're discouraged or they think, oh, if I try out, it's just going to be toxic and X, Y, and Z, it's not going to be a good experience. Um, or they were never encouraged to do so. Maybe that woman or that student, whoever, has never had anyone in their life encourage them to do this that, oh, no, girls don't do that. Wh- women don't do that. <laughs> but when they see me or Coach Carolina, who is also an avid Apex player, um, out here talking about these things, doing these things, it can inspire more people. So that's why it's important to us. Um, and additionally, it is the example that we set for the men and the women in our program. Um, from everything to, to speaking publicly about these things to the day-to-day You know, I got to be very considerate about my actions and what of my behavior is going to be reflected to my students. And it could be something like if I'm speaking with a student and they interrupt me, am I as the director going to let them interrupt me? Or am I going to set an example of say, hey, you know, don't interrupt me. And, you know, keeping in mind that the example that I'm setting for the women in my program is, you know, don't let anyone interrupt you regardless of their gender. And for men, don't interrupt anybody regardless of their gender. So yeah, the, the experiences I had very early on definitely shaped the way that I approach things as a coach and also the way that we built this program at St. Mary's um, by being just intentionally visible. Because when you tell the world, everyone belongs in esports but you don't have anything to back it up who's gonna believe you i'm not gonna believe you but i think the results speak for themselves we have in our program a population of about 60 students and 40 percent are women so we're not quite at the 55 percent that is reflective at um, st mary's university but we're getting pretty close
1: that is pretty good. Um, you know, you, you, you shared a lot in your response and you, I, I, what I pulled from it was using your platform to teach and role model. You brought up some really good points about the um, access and the cost of just even getting into this for in-representation. And, um, and I, and, and I want to build off that with this next question, but I want to welcome back, George. George, I explained to folks what happened. So, well, I'm going to ask the question that I asked you after this question because I want to stay on this kind of line here. Yep. So
0: we We lost power due to weather issues, so i apologize I'm, I'm glad to be back.
1: We are recording this on uh is it January third? I kind of lost track it's january third, and so it's um it's uh we're all still uh, going through sort of the winter um storm stuff and and i I know that internet is 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 um not that great in certain um parts of the country so um, go, building off what um, was shared by Caitlin, uh, uh Moog, how do you, I mean, you're obviously given your role, how do you build an inclusive culture in eSports with, with college students? And what advice would you give to um, administrators, student affairs professionals who are building or faculty who are building um, inclusive communities um, or an eSports program? And, you know, what are the strategies
3: you utilize? I think, um, I, think one, I definitely love this as a follow-up to Caitlin's great example of execution and intent. Um, and the biggest undertone that I want to take from that and highlight first is it starts with you, the person in the seat of development, the person who is leading the charge, who's scoping this and structuring it. And I, I always have this phrase um, that the majority of us in our seats of power or our sites of responsibility are usually one or two, rarely all three of these three different things. They're either the gamer, the business-oriented person, or the academic, they're rarely all three. If you're lacking in one of those, now you know which networks you need to be building up within your own campus of resources to provide the whole purpose of what higher education is about, which is growing professionals of today and tomorrow, especially if we have the foresight about tomorrow. And esports is still a very much tomorrow topic. But past that, one of the biggest things, I want to reference a story about humility, about where I was put in my place really hard. But I had a student who was for a moment um, and I'll go ahead and date myself. I don't mind it. I'm 40 years old now. I'm definitely more of the boomer in the space in regards to development of my seat amongst most of my peers in the space. But in the very first kind of meeting I had with students to gain interest and start developing programming, um, I introduced one of my founding players by the name of Callie Simonson. So, it's Kylie. if you ever see this, here's that story once again. But I introduced her because I was enamored with the fact that we already had amazing talents on campus that were driven, that were passionate, that were willing to be vulnerable to the idea of mentorship, but also vulnerable to the idea of sharing it back. And I already had a pretty good standard, and I still do, about making sure student voices are equal to mine. And they amplify mine or I amplify theirs. And it's not a matter of saying just because I'm the old head in the room or the, you know, older person in the space that my voice is, is paramount. It is not the only voice. Um, but I introduced this student as a top 500 female Mercy in Overwatch. And I love this story and I reference I get emotional every time I share it because it was one of those moments where my student understood the assignment before I even told them the assignment. And she didn't interrupt me in the moment. She waited till the end of it out of respect and pulled me aside and say, the fact that I'm a woman has nothing to do with the fact that I'm top 500. And um, put me in my place. And that was day one and I, apologize profusely for that, but then I understood my own assignment better than what I originally set out to do. And so that level of, of vulnerability and intent and building a culture of two-way communication is critical to empowering the next generation of understanding that their voice is absolutely powerful, that it is worth spotlighting, that it is worth clearing the path for, but you have to meet students where they're at. You have to understand how they view the world. And as a first-generation, first-round millennial, zenial, transitional um, into a Gen Z audience predominantly, there is a difference in the way that we look at the world on top of an administration who tends to be Xers, and boomers, and older. Um, you know, and, that, and understanding that, that one of the biggest skill sets that we have in this seat of development is the art of translation, is the art of being the translator between the initiatives and the metrics and the, 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 you know, the, the different you know, standards or goals that we need to meet from an administrative perspective and then coupling it with the values and the intent and the passions of the students and under- letting them and helping them understand A little bit of both worlds, you know, finding the way to truly be inclusive. And um, I do share one story. I I gave a TED Talk in 2019, but never mind that. It was another TED Talk panelist that shared uh, the way that she looks at DEI. And she said there's three phases and rarely, rarely people do the third phase. The first phase of diversity is a room filled with people of different walks, genders, religious backgrounds, political backgrounds, diversity in the most black and white definition. Hmm. inclusivity is the fact that there's a table with a place setting for every one of those individuals. But welcoming, welcoming, the hardest one to do is that there is a room full of diverse individuals with a place setting for everyone and a menu that caters to everybody's palate. And gaming, the gaming side of this is absolutely the welcoming component. And that set the tone for me in, in OU's development about the fact that Genshin Impact and Halo are equals. COD and Animal Crossing are equals. And plenty of people will argue that with me And I don't care about that because the front facing of COD, sure, we'll never touch an Animal Crossing, but the community engagement of students, especially with the sheer volume of students that we have at an OU or or the bigger university is important, especially from a student affairs initiative about how many students can I impact to give them things to do, but also help give them pathways to grow outside of the classroom um, on top of what they're learning in the classroom and then give them ways to even use what they're learning in the classroom immediately before their livelihoods are dependent on it as career people past, you know, post-grad. Um, and the, the, the last portion I want to mention is that OU's founding development, the we had identified 11 student positions of leadership that we wanted to build from the very beginning. Of those 11, seven were women. OU's program was developed by women predominantly. And it allowed us to catapult um, very, very fast into scaling up a macro perspective. So some numbers... Um, for us, for OU, the program, the, the community around the program, the community of the topic is now over 3,100 members. It is the, one of the largest student organizations on campus. The program, the eSports component, which now couples all the competition, production, media and news, journalistic practicum opportunities, community engagement, and you know the intentional stuff like that is now pushing 220 students. Um, and so one thing that I share with that is those numbers sound amazing. Great. Yes, I'm proud of it too. But the other thing too, if I put that in translation to to like what Caitlin just shared, the ratio of percentage of student body to the size of her program's intention is almost identical. I just have a a bigger pool of students that are currently enrolled at OU versus St. Mary's. The percentage of students in that enrollment base in the program is almost identical. And that's really important. So I wanna make sure that the fact that the school that I represent might have more students is absolutely on par you know, and vice versa in regards to the intention of an impact and scope. The very, very last thing that I wanna share is when we talk about the eSports side of this, when we recruit in traditional athletics to programs like OU football, we're getting a student athlete who has had over 10 years of mentorship, sportsman-like conduct training, discipline, mental acuity, mentorship from a coach. When I recruit an 18-year-old COD player to the University of Oklahoma, I'm getting somebody with probably zero development in regards to the interpersonal skills of professional, you know, understanding their own decorum, their presence, their own brand. And that comes with the further development of what we're seeing in things like K-12 and the scholastic pipeline in having younger and younger um, exposure to the ideas of digital literacy, representation online in a digital environment, how to conduct yourselves. And the fact that you originally, especially the millennial generation, hid behind the keyboard, hid behind that IGN, that name as a means of safety, which gave them a false sense of freedom in how they berate women or minorities or people that they just don't like or literally did a better job than them in the game. Um, And I'm definitely watering down the verbiage that they would use in that scenario. But if I'm teaching a six-year-old in t-ball how to shake a hand after a loss and go back to the training grounds, get better so they can overcome their champion at six years old, Imagine when I'm teaching digital literacy and that same kind of mentality at six years old in Roblox and Minecraft and those things, and then growing them into esports in middle school and high school. And by the time that we get into collegiate space, how much well-rounded and better stewards of a community that is truly inclusive will come. So we represent the first generational chapter of developing a new industry that predates things like the NCAA, that predates these governing bodies that rule the world of athletics, that rule these different types of things, accreditation and academia, all these things, we're in the precursor of that. And the question that I always ask is thinking about how history always repeats itself. What did programs like OU football look like in the first 10 years? Because that's what this is. And people can't fathom that. What was the world like in football for 50 years before the NCAA existed? We're in that per, per, in portion of the timeline of development. And we see this all over the place in regards to different conferences, NCAA, NACE, you know, in, you know NECC, CECC, EGF, You know, these different conferences in the esports world are no different than again the infantile state of what the NCAA represented, you know, again, in the birth of it. And now majority of especially the universities that are in those D2, D2, 3, D, D4, you know, or D1, 2, 3, sorry, JUCO NIA school classifications, you know, they're they're regurgitating governance coming from a governing body that they kind of just kind of sold 50% of their critical thought and development to. They don't have to think about that stuff already. There's already a baseline. And now you have a scope that is narrowed of what you can do because of those those protections and enforcements. And we're all throwing darts at a board, hoping that they'll stick. And that's a good thing. So if I see somebody going hard into competition, if I see somebody going hard into more casual or a blend of it between the club narrative, varsity narrative or student org, you know, casual gaming element, all of it is valid because who becomes the fans of your teams? Just because I'm OU and have OU football doesn't mean I get that community immediately as my fanship. I have to develop and cultivate a grow strong alumni build a community that's inclusive, that will absolutely rally behind those teams, which then does create the revenue streams internally, strong alumni pools, endowments, and so forth. But that is a 10-year roadmap, easy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you couple all that, the the main question was about inclusivity, is meeting students where they're at, listening to them, and the time sink that's involved in that is that you do have to listen to a lot of students. A lot of students get really motivated, they're passionate, because they found something that finally speaks to them, that represents them in a topic. And then the further forms of representation of maybe somebody who looks like them, speaks like them, came from the same background or uh, community, or international students, or these things that transcend those barriers, then comes into fray. But if you are in a seat of development like these, and you're not even allowing students to have the ability to touch you, to speak to you, to reach you, then you will never find the true champions that are already on your campus. And make no mistake, the the esports titles that are predominant, the League of Legends, the Overwatch, the more fantasy based titles are the top tier esports in the world. It's not Madden, it's not 2K, it's not FIFA. Um, And that also goes in the socioeconomic discussion that Caitlin was alluring to in regards to the regionality of different area codes and zip codes in regards to recruitment. But the one step past that is that when you start to take sensitivity and, and apply sensitivity to all these things, you start to create a world where the lowest income high school and the highest income high school can meet each other, have a conversation and carry a dialogue with each other. And in society, that does not happen often. And it doesn't happen often in a peaceful mindset or in a peaceful environment. Um, And so we hosted an event that did literally have a school that is predominantly 98% minority demographic that are on, um, you know, federally mandated or state mandated meal plans and low income status meant with one of the most richest private schools in Oklahoma in a Rocket League tournament. And they faced off, shook hands and had conversations as if none of that mattered. And that's where gaming transcends that. But because of the more introverted nature of our culture, they struggle with how to articulate that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so being that representative, that conduit of saying your voice is powerful. Let me help you understand how to leverage it and scale it up is how you end up with the result of people that will be the succession of our roles. That will be the future generations of the legacy of creating these programs um, that will stand the test of time well past our, our last breaths. So that was a lot, but, uh, yeah,
1: you know, and I want to pull George into the conversation and George, we will get to the initial question later, but I want to kind of stay and and keep going on this thread a little bit, you know, uh, Moog spoke a little bit about the, uh, you know, obviously empowering students to take ownership in the journey and and, and just a very powerful platform of of, um of how this sport is growing from multiple lenses i I keep looking i want to reframe it back to the uh for from a collegiate administration side. What advice would you give college leaders who are trying to develop an esports program on their campus uh taking i mean obviously there's multiple lens to um, um to view this uh, as uh, as moog and as Kaylin has already kind of described in the previous two questions but some of your initial thoughts
0: well sometimes life hands you some great serendipity, right? And so that little power outage, I think is nice because I'm I'm gonna build on what Caitlin shared and, and what Michael shared and, and actually tackle a little bit of the original question and then the one that you just asked, try to put them all together in a bow. Um, so when I got into this, I got into it, I was a senior student affairs officer. So I had this sort of institutional interest. Hey, there's something going on out there that I've heard about. And I was hearing about it from our students. So the student affairs person in me was focused on the individual student, like, hey, they're all involved in this and I don't know anything about it and I need to know more about it. I met Charles Huber, who was a dean of students at a smaller institution and he was running an esports program. And so he came into the book project and I met Ryan Arnett through Peter Lake at Stetson and Ryan was a law student who was playing esports and was professional esports athlete. And um, so I wanted to bring Ryan into the project so that we'd have that student voice, right? Mm-hmm. And all of us got into it because all of us believe that there's tremendous potential in esports, um, and that potential is stuff that Caitlin and Michael have spoken to. Um, but like all great potential, it would benefit from a little bit of structure and a little bit of encouragement. But I want to underline the little bit part, uh, because in higher ed, we have this tendency to want to control and bureaucratize stuff. And esports is a counterculture movement. Hmm. cannot forget that. And the fastest way for us in higher ed, we can't kill esports. That would be an arrogant thing for us to think. But we can, by trying to dominate it, by not listening to student voices, by not building inclusive spaces. Students will just go off and take esports somewhere else. They don't need us. Esports existed before us. It will exist after us. They really don't need us. Um, And so Charles and Ryan and I got into this project to sort of try to start a conversation, because at the time there really wasn't a conversation in the literature and, and in the professional associations about esports. In terms of advice, um, and this, again, is going to build on what Caitlin and, and move shared. Um, my first advice is hire people like Caitlin and Michael. Um, but my know what your institutional values are and make sure that you engage in ways consistent with those values. And make sure you know why you're trying to get into esports. What is it that you want? Is this about enrollment? Is it about prestige? Is it about competition? Is it what is it about for you as an institution? Now, those two pieces of advice are true for any sort of initiative, right? Mm -hmm. But here's some here's some additional ones. I mentioned this earlier, I talked about the sort of different, uh, well, let me, let me step back. So, so there's, there's some folks who get in some institutions who get into esports because it's about prestige. And there are some people who get into it for enrollment, and there are some people who get into it for the academics and helping students develop careers and, you know, changing campus culture. There's lots of reasons that institutions, we talk about this in the book, why do institutions get involved in esports? And then there's those different forms, the RSOs, the sports clubs, and, you know. My advocacy is to the extent that you can get involved in esports in as many of those ways as you can. The most successful esports programs are the ones that span across areas of campus interest that aren't simply isolated to one corner or one pocket. The second piece of advice that I would share with folks is don't underestimate and don't underinvest. This tendency to want to do sort of creeping incrementalism in higher ed, this is not a place to build five seats today and then come back and realize you needed 25 and then come back and realize you needed a varsity program and then come back and... Right, students don't—they're not going to wait. They don't need us. <laughs> Listen to them and and anticipate where that's going to go. Uh, so so invest, uh, invest. That that's and and that's the other thing I would say to folks is, um, whatever whatever you're trying to accomplish, and whatever you're willing to invest. Make sure you have some sort of systemic way of measuring whether you're getting there or not. I think that we're, we're going to talk later about sort of what's coming ahead, but I think I think at some point there's going to be a reckoning. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have gotten into esports without all the planning, and we're going to come to a point now that esports—you know—we're sort of now three and four and five years into esports, right? there's going to be a, a revisiting of this and that's healthy and necessary. Uh, we need to build a habit of constantly sort of where are we at? And then the fourth and final thing I'll say, and it's a, picks up on a point that has been made already, but I want to reiterate it because I believe in it so much. Esports has to be student led. T-sports, traditional sports, um, you you have student leadership organizations, right? I mean, you you have like student student participants. I don't call them student athletes because of the sort of racist history of that phrase, but but the student participates to student participants in traditional athletics. You have leadership councils, you have team captains, you have all of that sort of thing. But they're not driving that show. It's very clear who's driving. Mm-hmm. It's the head coaches. Right. It's the ADs. It's the conference leaders. It's the presidents of institutions in esports, It better be your students or you're done. That's just the bottom line. You you you've got to see yourself as facilitating, not directing. I think that's essential. So there's there's a sort of quick answer to how I got into this space and what the what we were trying to do with the book and some advice for folks moving forward.
1: George, that that was phenomenal. It was very clear to me. Basically, know your institutional values and it better be student-led. I liked your point about spanning. um, I think it was like uh, one of the first advice you gave um, of ensuring that your your program spans across the institution, like the the interest institution. And it leads actually to this next question that I'm going to open up to all of you. You know, obviously... In uh, Well, obviously, but I, in 2019, uh, NCAA, they took a hands-off policy to collegiate gaming. And, and that allowed the university to really determine where do you place an esports program administratively um, or where do you want to reside. So it, it it allows the institution to decide, you know, obviously students is a big component and should be the driver of it. But I'm curious to know for, from all of you. So this question is to every one of you. Um, where is your esports program located um, administratively, and um, and how does where it's located influence your program and purpose? And I'm going to ask Moog if you can kick it off.
3: Yeah, and this is again another great segue off of uh, Dr. McClellan's um, kind of finale for that. In that I'm housing student affairs, but I want to share a little bit of that journey. I set out a tone in saying that if I believe that gaming is for everyone, it needs to live in something that is more agnostic, especially for this size of the school. And one of the things that I always say is that I want it to be a growth in the nervous system of the university, not a growth on the surface of the university. And also wanted to prevent as long as possible, if not forever, the siloing of this topic away from the general connection of the community. Whereas on campuses like ours, the football program is almost an entire, it is an entirely different world. Those athletes you rarely see aside from walking from the dorm to the stadiums and back, they have their own personal tutors. They have their own personal complete infrastructure, food, everything. And I don't want that world to exist, at least not anytime soon. And at the same point, again, trying to create the pathways of it. So Warehouse inside of Student Affairs, which was a 2020 evolution, in the very beginning, started as a registered student organization that was staff-initiated, staff-led, um, and pulled the students in to provide the voice. And then we 50-50 shared the load of intention, scope, and future trajectory. So I originated in the Department of IT, which is where I was originally hired from. Because what other department on campus is in literally every physical wall on campus. So it didn't create the best pathways in regards to relationship building, in regards to deans or the academia components, academic components. And rather, it was definitely more of the infrastructure components of saying, hey, I at least have the Rolodex of the entire campus that I can knock on or some form of representation from each one of those different areas. Um, on campuses, whether it was the law school, whether it was our medical services school in Oklahoma City, or our satellite um, uh, campus in Tulsa, um, aside of the Norman main campus. So that grew us from, you know, the first two, three years into then Dr. Surratt, our dean of students, um, finally coming over from Berkeley and getting a final, you know, get some time in front of them and saying, hey, we built this program that definitely speaks about student affairs more than anything. How about you help us out? And so that started my trajectory of finally becoming the first ever one FTE director of esports for OU, but then elevated all of it into the forefront, which just amplified the student affairs mission. Um, But uh, we're housed inside of student affairs as well, with the intention of the same mandates of how do I help students learn outside of the classroom? How do I get as many, how do I create pathways and doorways for students to get involved if they choose to, by creating the information to inform them that this exists? after that it's on the students and and making sure that we're present and available to answer those questions so um but yeah that's um, that's it that's our scope that's our purpose and that's where we reside
0: yeah
1: Moog, it's similar like UC berkeley is also in student affairs given the size of um our institution now um george your your, your situation is a little bit different right
0: yeah and i love this question I'm, I'm i i because i think it's a great question but because i think this panel is going to share some really important different ideas, but but also you'll hear some themes. So esports generally fi- finds its way into one of three institutional pockets, student affairs or athletics or other. It's always interesting because it's other, but other tends to be academic affairs. And and that's the case at the University of Mississippi. The history of esports here is it started as a club sport uh, and, and it came out of computer sciences. And uh, a a group of faculty of folk over there started supporting esports. And then Tony Amater, Dr. Tony Amater, who does our outreach programs, all of our online education stuff, he got involved and and he became an advocate. And then our provost, Noel Wilkins, became an advocate. Mm And a lot of the energy around earlier, Michael talked about some of the recent developments that have happened at the University of Mississippi in our program. But a lot of the growth of esports at the University of Mississippi is driven by students and by faculty and academics. There's a genuine interest in the connection between esports and academics. And a number of our faculty folks are doing research around esports. Uh, and so we're positioned in the provost office. The land sharks by the way go land sharks <laughs> and uh and uh so we're we're positioned in in the provost office and our our vision as an institution is to move to a place where we have a truly cross-institutional uh, student focused academic and student life partnership and that that's i think a theme you're going to hear i think all of us believe that you house it somewhere, depending on what you're trying to accomplish, but you need to make sure it's not isolated there. You need these bridges to different places. So that's our story at the University of Mississippi. We're, we're housed in academics.
1: And Caitlin, um, where is your program reciting?
2: So, <clears throat> excuse me, at St. Mary's, our eSports program lives within our athletics program. Now, I do want to make a note that we are a Division II school. We're in the Lone Star Conference. That's going to be be a little bit different, (laughs) (laughs) Um, a little bit different than Division I athletics departments. Um, For us at St. Mary's, the idea of bringing the esports program to campus was first championed by our athletic director, um, Robert Coleman. Um, and he was inspired because of his son played a lot of esports titles, Fortnite being the most popular one that he references um when he talks about his son. Um, but that was that was kind of the initial champion. Um, my assistant coach, Coach Carolina, she is the person who initially proposed the idea um to athletics because she used to be um in our athletics department as um compliance there we go and so she planted these seeds these ideas and our athletic director is the person who you know reached out across campus to IT um to the dean of students to get that that buy-in that you know it can be competition it can be this it can be that let's do it um they secured a sponsor and built out the physical part of the program arena And then they hired me and um, go from there. But speaking towards our um, program goals, our mission, um, it is academic excellence, then competitive excellence. Because again, all of the students competing under our banner are considered student athletes. And we are of the mindset that the student part comes first. So it has been very academic focused, very competitive focused. But even in our very first season, our very first year of operation, um, we discovered more than just students wanting to play the game, right? Your, your students are interested in all aspects of esports, whether that's social media or streaming and broadcasting or you know, hosting on-campus events. Um, And that's when we started building out our student staff. Of our student staff component of our program, um, you know, speaking towards those pathways and doors for students uh, after college, helping them get those get that experience as a student. Um, being in athletics has, I think been a fantastic framework for how we operate because a lot of the resources that we might struggle to to get outside of athletics are already built into our department things like marketing and communications we have an athletics communications director who handles things like media requests if anybody requests to speak with me or a student there is somebody who already handles those for us um we have somebody on our within the department that just handles website statistics and scores you mentioned you know before before we started recording that you had looked at our website you know if you lo- if you had a moment to check out our um schedule you will see that every single game that we've played this semester has been recorded um and our history book is updated year to year you know things like that that we might struggle with outside of our department are already built in um Uh, things like our compliance officer. You know, he is the person who is making sure that students are eligible to compete, that they're maintaining full-time credits, 2.0 GPA. Um, Although we are considered a non-NCAA sport-like stunt, um, our student athletes are still represented um, on our SAC committee, Student Athlete Advisory Committee. We have two, we have three representatives. Most teams have two or three. Um, so we still have a voice within the department and and even other resources that, again, might be difficult for us to achieve outside of the department are things like access to our athletic trainers. Um, we've had students with issues with their hands, wrists, shoulders, um, and our athletic trainers are trained to deal with those kinds of injuries or stresses. Um, we have a strength and conditioning coach who twice a week, you know, he's walking our kids through workouts um same with all of our other 12 sports teams um we have sports psychologists on staff that we again as teams will work with to help with the mental load of being in competition being in the moment of the game similar to all of our other uh, sports varsity teams um I will say though when it comes to building bridges on campus that is where we come across some challenges um, because students, faculty, whomever might have a preconceived notion of what athletics is and it just, it's not always positive. That can sometimes be a barrier when we want to build bridges across campus, but we use that to our benefit. We have this, again, you'll hear me say building bridges all the time because that really is what we try to do building bridges and inviting people in. So, um, and that comes in many different forms. We've partnered with our business school to run a Super Smash Bros. tournament for homecoming. (laughs) We are an official homecoming event on the official homecoming calendar. Um, We do um, a yearly fundraiser every fall, it's a 12-hour live stream. And we invite people from across campus to join us and play different games. Um, like our dean of students, he has joined us to play Fall Guys before. Um, we've had our vice provost of diversity, equity, and inclusion join us to play Tetris and talk about, you know, her new role and her new department. Um, we've invited the career center to again, you know, come play a game and here's, you know, five minutes to tell us everything about the career center. Um, so while yes, we've had some challenges building those bridges across campus, what we have found is by literally inviting people in, hey, do you want to come play a game? We've started to break down some of those barriers, some of those challenges, and and really kind of weave ourselves into the the fabric of campus. So I think being in athletics at a division two school has definitely has its benefits, but it, it's not without challenges. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful to, to be in athletics, but throughout this whole thing, there was one thing that I kind of kept in the back of my mind because, uh Mike mentioned it, um, you, you started in it and now you're here and here, you know, there's this growth trajectory that doesn't necessarily exist in traditional athletics. When you think about Esports. You can have your coaches, you can have your director, but the growth opportunity, that's that's the unknown mm-hmm. in yes. terms of the, the employee leadership. So I don't know. It's something to think about for the future.
0: I, I do want to say I'm so glad that Caitlin talked about the, the wellness of student participants because it's an area that doesn't, I think, get as much attention when people start to plan a program. And Glenn, this goes back to what, when you ask about people building programs. This is one of those areas people don't think about and it has to do with the kind of preconceptions about what esports is i think but planning for the wellness of your student participants things like wrist injuries eye strain the stresses of playing um you know all of those sorts of things that's really important and a lot of a lot of institutions that are involved in esports have smaller student enrollments they may be in rural areas so The athletic, the the pool of potential athletics trainers may be limited. Mm -hmm. And building on the existing resources in athletics, whether you're in academics or student affairs or whatever, that's just so important. Now, I
1: appreciate hearing uh, just where you all each reside uh, because uh, it, it does speak to how programs can potentially learn from each other as to, you know, whether, you know, like to hear the resources of being in athletics to um, being in a larger institution and creating pathways to the to the research that can potentially be tied when you're on the faculty affairs. It's really interesting. And one of the things we talked about before the evening we started recording was putting the websites of all your programs down below, because, I, you know, as we think about those who are going to be watching or listening to this episode, if they're thinking like, you know, what should we be thinking about when we're growing or when we revisit what are the evolution of our programs going to look like in the in the future? Uh, you, they can take some potential ideas or thoughts from just visiting your websites. And it's also a perfect segue um, into the final question. It's our standard question that we always ask um, since this, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. Sort of like, what are you feeling now? And what are your hopes for esports in the next 10 years, um, particularly on college campuses? And if You can take two minutes each to kind of kind of close out your thoughts. Um, Moog, I'm going to start with you.
3: Okay. I definitely want to go back to what I said earlier about integration into the nervous system of a university. Um, And everyone here has talked about, you know, whether there is a challenge of overcoming those hurdles of building relationship or the intention of it. So one thing I failed to mention is I'm also an adjunct instructor inside of the College of Journalism, as esports is a media entertainment industry as well, just like traditional sports. And those media rights are a large portion of what fuels that machine. And one of the things that people are focused so much on is the competition of competitive video games. But did people realize that national boards are now judging in journalistic programs and projects for ranking in esports coverage? Um, and so those are new ways of competing with this topic, while also building the skill sets that this industry needs. And a university that the premise of the TED Talk I gave in 2019 was to paint the picture of higher education to be the perfect landscape of development for this topic. We have all of, of the training disciplines that we need for this industry already on the majority of our campuses we all have business or communication style degrees there's some kind of media component a lot of us have sports management or sports management types um law is paramount and so there's tons of ways that we can integrate from an academic perspective to further amplify one doing this correctly ethically and establishing the standards of operations not just for ourselves but for a conference for a region for a national or a global board or infrastructure and then the future of it is obviously the job placement so We've seen plenty of degrees starting to come out, you know, certificate programs, and I'm not really going to go into my thoughts on either or. The point is, is that in the future, you know, we saw ESPN dabble into ESP uh, to esports several years ago and then completely retract. I think they'll eventually come back as it stabilizes. But the the main kind of hot take of this is that we have a lot of great executors in this space in specific areas, both macro, micro. Um, specific intention of competition, specific intent of community engagement, DEI initiatives, representation, um, program executions and different things. I'll reference Boise State as a great one of a journalistic practicum doing a lot of production and a lot of standardization in there. Um, there's tons of high tier competition. So as this world continues to mature and all of us start to carry more about the balance of those things coupled in with wellness, there's the entire research component that a lot of our universities are identified for that needs to dive into this, whether it be medical research or into program development, even journalism and law, all kinds of tons of opportunities. But the other biggest thing to note is that in the grand scheme of things, people need to remember that this industry is still a baby. It is very, very young. And we alluded to it earlier in regards to the fact that esports doesn't need the scholastic space. We are defining our purpose in this, in this entire segment. Is our pipeline necessary? There are obvious benefits that we can see from it. But from the standpoint of how it got here to this point, it did it without us. So, what value can we add? Uh, what, what kind of intention can we do to finally stabilize it, bring it more in the mainstream, more acceptance, less, um, less about the controversy that is deep at the core of issues? that are now becoming systematic issues because of the lack of oversight, the lack of governance. How do we mature those, stabilizes, and create those pathways that we can get away from narratives like being a woman in gaming is something that needs to be focused on instead of just saying gamers and competitors from our universities went and competed on a global stage, regardless of any other identifier. Mm -hmm. Um, After that, those one-off stories to highlight that person, absolutely a valid place to highlight those different adversities and different challenges. But on the front face of it, the, the admiration doesn't come from that or this. This is the university or this this brand now pushing this team into the forefront. If your quarterback gets injured, it's still the University of Oklahoma versus Ole Miss at the end of the day. It doesn't matter who the quarterback is and whoever wins that game. It is still those two universities. The rosters don't matter in the grand scheme of things because your alumni are going to pay for that and your different support models are still going to support that. That's all of the, the meat and potatoes of how we got here. But no matter what, something happens, unfortunately. Our two schools still compete. And that's the other thing too, is, is that you can't make excuses. You have to start learning how to build the the infrastructure strong enough that you do have your B rosters and not just in competition, but in operations and administration. Um, and then the support of it comes from that when you do provide visibility and tan- you know, tangibles to it. So I'll stop there.
1: Thank you, Moog. Caitlin, what are your final thoughts? Um, You know, it's
2: tough to say. I think... Personally, I think we're gonna see a lot of really positive change. Um, and one of the areas that I'm focusing on is recruitment. Um is change not necessarily changing the way we recruit, but changing the way we approach recruitment. Um the pipelines for recruitment are just now being filled. Like Mike said, this all of this <laughs> is still in its infancy. Um, but one of the things that I think we'll see a change in is more access, more opportunity um, for students, K through 12, when they're in their final two years of high school, we're gonna see a change in the people who are trying to get recruited and who gets recruited. And I mean that in a good way. Right now, I think recruitment is very focused on the skill level, right? Who's the, who's your top 500? Who's, who's good at this role in this game? without acknowledging there's probably a large group of people who haven't had the opportunity, accessibility, or encouragement to reach those levels. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot more continued buy-in from K-12, as well as a change in the people who are getting recruited for mm-hmm. these really, really great teams, really, really great schools, um, I don't think it'll come quick, though. Mm-hmm. I think the industry will move kicking and screaming because of this notion of, okay, but but the good player, the, the most qualified player, without, again, realizing there are a lot of factors that got that particular student there that weren't available for these other students. Um, so, yeah, I think there'll be a change in how we I hope there's a change in how we approach recruitment. I know for myself and my assistant coach, her entire job in our program is just recruitment. And while, yes, we do use services like um, NCSA, um, which is now absorbing Be Recruited, we also try to implement out-of-the-box ideas to recruit people that otherwise may have been overlooked like reaching out to more private schools, Mm -hmm. reaching out to more um, non-co-ed schools, like all boys, private schools, all girls, private schools um, that maybe aren't on the radar for other programs to recruit from. Um, So, and that also depends on, on the games that we have in our program. Like right now we've got Call of Duty, Fortnite, League of Legends, Rainbow Six Siege, Rocket League, and soon-to-be Valorant, a lot of those games are Mm PC-based, which also can cut out a large portion of students that have only ever played console games because that is all they could have ever afforded. Mm -hmm. So we, as a program, have to be mindful of, okay, what games are we offering? What games are we fielding varsity teams for and supporting? So I think there's going to be a shift there as we continue going, but it's tough to say. 10 years is, that's a lot. I'm thinking maybe five years, we'll see that positive change.
1: (laughs) Five years in the future. George, what your final thoughts?
0: Uh, Predicting the future of anything, but particularly eSports is a risky venture. Um, I will will echo the comments of my colleagues I'll add something. Um, There's a conversation that's coming in esports around ethics and cheating. Um, There are shadowy connections between the gambling industry and esports. And um, the more money there is, the more likelihood that we're going to see significant issues around cheating and ethics and gambling. And we need to be ready for that. Um, rather than reacting with shock. Um, you know, it's sort of like the the scene in the movie Casablanca. There's gambling going on here. I am shocked, shocked, I tell you. Um, no, we know it's coming. And, and we need to be grown ups about this and get in front of it. Um, there's other ethical issues. That's just one. I, I think the question about ethics is an important one in sports. I, I think people like Michael and Caitlin and our students are ready for those conversations. We just need to help make spaces where those conversations can take place. Um, which leads me to my second thought, which is um, there is no national governance organization for collegiate esports. Mm-hmm. Maybe there doesn't need to be, I don't know. Maybe we're not gonna get to one single one, but. But I'll go back to the question you asked about why did we get involved in the book, my colleagues and I? And, and part of it was this notion of if we, higher ed we, don't get in front of this, we're going to get run over by this. Mm-hmm. And, and a governance organization, maybe it's several, but, but we, need, we need governance organizations. I, I like NACE, but NACE has been about let's sponsor leagues and all that kind of stuff. And, and NACE should get a lot of props. And I'm not saying NACE needs to go away, but maybe it's not NACE. Maybe it's something we haven't seen yet, but I think there needs to be a, a movement toward governance in the field. And then and then the last thing I'll say is um, I'll go back to something that I said before. While I don't know what it's going to look like, I know it's not going to look like it looks today. Hmm right? And higher ed, in order for that full potential to be realized, higher ed absolutely has to get out of this idea of controlling it and think of itself as a facilitator of it. We're a we're partner to esports. We don't own it. It doesn't need us. Um, it could be better with our voices, I think, and, and that, for the audience today, I guess that's what I, I guess that's my entreaty to everybody who's in the audience today. Uh, I realize y'all are really busy people and you got a thousand things to think about. But I'm telling you, a big chunk of your students are playing esports. And you need to know about it. You need to talk about it. You need to think about it. You need to engage with them around it. Um, you can't just sort of sit back and, you know, act like you don't know it's there because it's there it's there in a really big way on your campus.
1: Thank you George. Um wow. Um I want to thank all of you for joining this panel today. I, I went in very curious to learn more and I think I'm walking away with even more questions because it's really speaking to the complexity of of this this very young but also fast evolving um um, program in the in this in the culture that it plays on a college campus. So, thank you, and I think that's also a perfect way to say, "Hey, we need to do this again in the future." Because let's 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 see where esports is in in a few years. Um, um, obviously, you know th- this is an intriguing and very um, important topic for us to talk about. Um, I'm glad you're be able to join this podcast um really quickly. I just gonna close up and you know uh, I just want to point out that umSUni first now has grown tremendously over the, the last couple of years. um I recently heard that we were able to hit that seventy five thousand download mark and over thirty thousand views on youtube um and you know our, our program and our podcast is expanding, so you know we're welcoming uh, Momta Akapati to our team as a new host. Um, if you haven't been able to listen to some of her episodes, they are phenomenal. Um, these are definitely meaningful conversations and discussions on so many topics that um, are part of our student affairs profession. And I'm just grateful to have all the amazing guests like the three of you to be part of this topic. Um, so. To um audience, definitely check out our website, stinfersnow.com. Um, check out the archives, check out the topics, check out all the guests. It's it's been incredible. Just um, you know, I was, we're kicking off this new year in 2023, just to see um what has been built over the last couple of years has just been amazing. Um, you know, we continue to have Nat uh, Ambrosi do the magic behind the scenes, um, preparing episodes, transcribing it, and just taking out. And um all, all the, the the production work that's required to to do these episodes. Our sponsors are super critical to our success. So Vector Solutions, um, thank you. Um, let me let me read the blurb really quickly. Um, how will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? The students report commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion are as important to academic rigor when selecting a college. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not in an expense for over 20 years. Vector Solutions, which now includes the Campus Prevention Network, formerly EverFi, has been a partner of choice for 2,000 plus colleges, universities, and national organizations. With nine efficacy studies behind our courses, you can trust and have full confidence that using the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve. Learn more at vectorsolutions.com. Forward slash student affairs now. This episode is also sponsored by Stylus. Um, uh, uh, we want to um, encourage you to check out their student affairs diversity and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use their promo code SA now for 30% off all books plus free shipping, um, including the book that George uh, put out with his colleagues. So definitely check that out. You can find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. Our podcast, like I mentioned in the beginning, could not be possible without their support. So please take a minute to visit their website and click on the sponsors um, link to review. Um, you know, I'm kicking off the 2023 with this podcast on uh, with this topic on esports. It's been phenomenal. Um, my name is Glenda Guzman. I want to thank everyone for listening and watching, um, and um, look forward to seeing you in the future. Have a great day, everybody.